Good morning. We have been talking about a religious system that exists today, but will exist in the last days. And as we were introduced to this religious system last week, in chapter 17 in the book of Revelation, we learned that this system will ride into existence on the back of a government and a world leader who will make it possible for a world religion to be implemented. And you might be thinking, that doesn't sound right. We already have a number of world religions. How is that going to happen, especially when we talk about the, the vast number and exclusiveness of some of these religions? But it's important to remember that there is a secular religion today that is being promoted rather extremely. Some people call it earth worship. It's existed for a very long time. Some people call it climate fascination or extremism. And and all of that really leading us to a place where the world wants to come together to save the planet. That's the idea. We're going to save the planet. Uh, When has mankind ever been able to do anything of that magnitude? I saw a recent statistic that, I guess, if the United States came together and addressed all carbon emissions, which allegedly are causing the Earth to warm, like I said, allegedly, uh, that that would account for 13% of all of the world's global warming. So you see, the world would have to, quote unquote, come together to fix that. That's just one example of areas in our world today where you see a almost religious, if not religious, fascination and extremism with one cause, one cause. So what will that cause be in the last days? We're not sure exactly, but we know that people will come together for the purpose of coming together to solve the world's problems. And they're going to be led by a world leader. And that world leader in the beginning will emerge as a peacemaker. But he ultimately will bring war. That's not hard to imagine either. So many people that ride into power proclaiming peace oftentimes are the worst when it comes to starting wars. So we're living in a world where these themes are not uncommon. We've seen them before. It's not as if we've never heard of Napoleon or Alexander the Great or Adolf Hitler or many other people throughout history who've come into power and really just wreaked havoc on society. But in the last days, this is going to be quite extreme. So this religious system, which we talked about last week, which we'll touch on today, will be brought into power or brought into a place of influence through a world power, and that's the world power called the beast, and we're going to talk about that today in Revelation chapter 17 and in the latter part of verse 6. And with that, let's open in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and, and we do pray that we would be, of course, encouraged to know that you're in control of all things, and that this one world government, which one day will exist, And while it will oppose you, we know that it will be destroyed, that you will ultimately end it, the way that you will end this religious system. All of it will attempt to rebuild the Tower of Babel in defiance of you. But we know that you will triumph, for you you are victorious over all. You cannot be defied. You're allowing us the time now to repent, but ultimately you will bring your judgment. And when you do, you'll restore the earth. And as we saw this weekend, the coronation of a new king in Europe, 
we also understand that your coronation day is coming. That is the day when you will be crowned king and kings and lord of lords over all the earth. And we look forward to that day with expectation, looking to rejoice when you will take your rightful place, seated on the throne of this world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we start with a situation in Revelation chapter 17. And again, I refer you to last week's study. I can't go back and cover it all, but I can tell you this, that John saw a woman and the woman represented a religious system. And when he saw her, we read in verse 6, latter part, when I saw her, he says, I was greatly astonished. That is, he was shocked. And then the angel said to me, that is the messenger bringing this revelation to John, the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. Now, as we look at that description, the beast we've seen before, we've talked about this beast on several occasions, specifically, uh, well, going back to our studies in the book of Daniel, but also recently in chapter 13 of the book of Revelation. This topic has come up a number of times. Today, we're going to look a little bit more deeply than we have in the past at this government that, again, will bring in this world religious system. There are, as sometimes referred to by Bible commentators, two Babylons. There is an ecclesiastic or religious Babylon, and then there's a global or political Babylon. They are really one, but they're two sides of the same coin. You see, if you're going to control people, you have to have a religion. We've seen this before. And if you're going to enforce that religion, you have to have a religious or political government to do so. What we're seeing today in our world is a a, a, a total turning of the tide, and we're seeing a a march towards Marxism, we're we're seeing a lot of actual fascism, We're, we're seeing a lot of people really looking to solve the world's problems by surrendering their freedom and their privacy, and that's going to continue, and soon it will not be a popular thing, if it already isn't very much a popular thing, to believe in Jesus or to to live the truth of Scripture. It's already becoming an anathema to the left. And so as we see that, and that's not a political message, that's just a fact. It is becoming a world that we barely recognize, and especially our nation, changing every day and not in a good way. Now, as we consider what we've learned here, John was greatly astonished when he saw this woman, which represents that system, and the angel asked him why. And I guess I have to ask myself and all of you as well, why are we astonished? Should we be? When man creates a system, whether it's religious or political, is it ever any good? Has it ever done any good? Has mankind ever been able to solve one, even one problem in the world? I mean, when the United Nations was formed, everyone thought, well, that's it. We can solve the world's political problems. Oh, yeah, that worked out well. They created more than they solved easily and continue to do so. And I I try to be relevant. I want to look... Not so much at the newspaper, but I want to look at the events that are taking place in our world in light of the scripture we're studying, not trying to predict what will happen, but getting a temperature, a pulse of where we are so that I can look ahead and say, well, we're not that far away from where we'll be. We're not there yet, thank God, but the day will come when these things will happen. I don't believe that we as the church of Jesus Christ will be here to experience those things, 
Maybe some of them early on, but I don't believe ultimately the wrath of God will be poured out on us. But it will be poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. So the angel agrees to explain to him two things, the mystery of the woman, which again we looked at in great detail last week, and the mystery of the beast with the seven uh, heads and the ten horns. So we're going to talk a little bit at the end. He sort of reverses it. He talks about the beast first, and then he talks about the woman again briefly, except that then when we get to chapter 18 next week, we'll see the destruction of this entire system, specifically the religious system. But again, that's next week's study. I'm going to say that this image is a vision, and therefore it has a great deal of symbolism. It can be difficult to understand or comprehend. And so I'm going to do my best to go through it. We've talked about these things before. This is a bit of a review, but for some of you who may not have been here, this this may be brand new. Hang in there. I'll do my best to try to help you see a big picture, because that's what we're looking at today, big picture of what this last day's kingdom will be like. Now, the first thing we're going to look at in chapter 8, excuse me, in chapter 17, verse 8, the angel begins to explain the mystery of the beast, not the woman. We don't get there yet. And he says, the beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. Now, that seems rather enigmatic, and and I agree, reading that, it almost creates more questions than answers that it provides. But as we look at it, we're not supposed to understand every facet of what will happen. We're just given the information so that when it does happen, we'll be able to recognize that it's happening. But even there, the angel gives us some valuable information. The beast, this beast which represents a person but also a government, once was, now is not, that is at the time of 95 AD when John was receiving this revelation, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction, personal pronoun, his destruction. So we're talking about the government, but we're also talking about an individual who leads the government. And that's the way we oftentimes talk about world governments, based on the leader of that government, especially a repressive regime. Most people today, when they're referring to Russia, speak more about Vladimir Putin because he is a repressive leader and he leads the nation or the, uh, if you want to call it, the oppressive regime of Russia. But as we consider this leader, this leader is called the beast, representing both a kingdom and a king that will appear in the middle of the last seven years of human history before the Lord returns, called Daniel's 70th week. Now, we know about the Roman Empire, that it appeared in the past, obviously, disappeared, of course, over time, but that we're told by Daniel and the book of Revelation that it will appear again in the future. The foundations of this reappearance have already come into play. It started with the common market in Europe, which ultimately became the European Union. And now there is, for all intents and purposes, a nation-state that includes several smaller nations that functions as one. And that is the beginnings of, not the ultimate fulfillment of, but the beginnings of this last day's government that we refer to in this way. Now, this coming world leader will rise to power over this empire, and it will be an empire, during the first of those three and a half years. He's going to come into power, 
And he's going to, as I've said already, be a peacemaker initially, but he will become a world dictator, and he's going to break his peace with Israel. Daniel makes that clear to us. But this beast will be, as Revelation 13 tells us, a spokesman for the kingdom that he rules. So he's the face of this last day's kingdom. And both he and his kingdom are referred to as a beast. The idea being this isn't something humane or human. This is something wicked and evil, even demonic and and satanic, as we'll see. This beast or antichrist is the powerful king that is acting and speaking on behalf of the kingdom or the government. And he will exercise authority over the earth, or much of it, during the second of those three and a half years of tribulation. So it's a process over seven years, starts with him being a world leader, bringing peace or trying to, or promising to bring peace, ultimately bringing devastation to the planet. Now this beast we know will be possessed by an evil spirit, a demonic evil spirit that apparently once lived on the earth in John's past. And that's the deeper meaning of the phrase in verse 8, the beast which you saw. That's to say that the individual will be born in our time or either now or has been born or will be in the near future, and that ultimately this person didn't live in the past, but the spirit that will possess him will have already lived in the past. What do I mean? Well, there's not a lot written on this, but the Bible does give us some understanding of evil spirits and their origin. I've shared this with you before, but going back to Genesis chapter 6, this we do know, before the flood, certain angels, not demons, Fallen angels are not demons. They are, they are very different. Certain angels, fallen angels, came to earth and they cohabitated with women. That's talked about in Genesis chapter 6. And they were called the sons of God. In Hebrew, the Benai Elohim. They're talked about in the book of Job as well. The Benai Elohim were angels. And I know this sounds very sci-fi or fantasy or even mythological. And that's because a lot of that mythology is based on the truth that there was a time where fallen angels came to earth before the flood and had children with the daughters of men called the Baf Adam in Hebrew. So very different types of beings. They're called the Benai Elohim, sons of God, with the daughters of men, so that we'll understand this is a hybrid situation. This is not men with women. This is something far more sinister. And of course, if you look at our mythology, if you look at our legends and our history, it's replete with examples of stories about gods like Zeus and Apollo and others coming to earth and having relations with women. And then, of course, the result are these demigods. Well, that Greek mythology, Egyptian, Roman mythology, is based on the biblical truth of Genesis 6. It's not that difficult to make that connection. But it's important to understand that while angels, Jesus told us, don't marry in heaven, these were fallen angels that fell to earth. So for for whatever reason and however, they were able to cohabitate with women, the result being that uh, God brought his judgment on the earth. In fact, mankind's judgment for this sin was the flood of Noah, which happened about 120 years after this event that's talked about in Genesis 6. The result of their union was 
that there were these creatures, if you could call them that, called the Nephilim. Again, mythology may refer to them as demigods. The Nephilim, they were the fallen ones. They were on the earth before the flood, according to Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. And again, this is the word of God. These creatures were the unholy offspring of fallen angels and mankind. And they lived for 120 years, or most of that, uh, and then he eventually died in the flood. That was why God brought the flood. The thoughts and the intents of man were evil continually because he had become so corrupted, not only genetically, but he had become so corrupted uh, morally that God had to scrub the earth. And people say, why would a loving God flood the earth? Well, maybe you'll begin to understand this. You know, if you're unfortunate enough to be infested by insects or vermin, you understand you'll do anything to get them out of your house. You know, in the 30 years that I've been a homeowner, I've had to be an exterminator. Uh, It wasn't my favorite job, still isn't, but you'll see me all in like hazmat equipment out there spraying and uh, using all sorts of things to get rid of black ants. I even had a a moment where... uh, Mice were getting into the crawl space, and I find myself having to be an exterminator. And you know something? When I'm trying to get rid of something like that, a nuclear weapon, a small field tactical nuke, in my crawl space would have been just fine. Anything it takes to get rid of these things, I'll do. So, so what's my point? My point is this. That the earth and the inhabitants of the earth gave God no other choice. He had to scrub it. And he did, but he saved Noah, who's described in this way as a man perfect in his generations, if you look at the literal interpretation. And it actually, it doesn't just mean that he was upright before God. Apparently, it means that he was fully human. So I know there's a lot of stuff to take in today, but it's important to understand that there came a point where God took Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives, and he isolated them from the destruction through the ark, and destroyed the earth, and really reformed the earth in the current form that it's in today. It was very different before then. So all of this has happened. This we know from the past. Some people don't consider the word of God in the book of Genesis to be true. I certainly do, obviously do. But when this happened, these creatures, they died. And listen, what happened to their spirits? They became disembodied spirits. And they're not like the spirits of men and women. There's something different because they have angelic heritage. So these spirits, the spirits of what are called the Nephilim or fallen ones, that's what the word actually means, uh, may not have been restricted to Hades or Sheol the way that the spirits of mankind are. What we believe is that this becomes the origin of all the legends and the myths of disembodied evil spirits or ghosts, which exist in every single culture. Why is that? And if that's not true, and we do know that the New Testament testifies that demons and evil spirits, they're the same thing. They exist, and Jesus dealt with them. Well, then where do they come from exactly? Did God create evil spirits? Or is it more likely that the scenario that I just shared with you is the story of their origin? And why is it that they so desire to possess a human body? Why is that? I believe it's pretty clear because they once had a physical body that was destroyed and now they're disembodied spirits and every single world culture has stories of ghosts, goblins, ghouls, evil spirits, demons, and quite frankly, the Bible in the New Testament especially is filled with examples of these creatures. So 
That's not a stretch. That's a logical explanation to their origin. Though I share with you, that's just an explanation from the scripture that could be plausible. There may be another explanation. But as I look at this, these very well may be the demons that continue to influence mankind today. Um, This beast, this world leader will be possessed. Now, that's not hard to imagine. When I listen to some of our world leaders and the things they say and the things they promote, there's no other logical explanation than they're possessed or at least strongly influenced by demonic spirits. I mean, some of the things that people have done over the centuries can only be explained in this way. Adolf Hitler, for example. Do you think, as as evil as the man was, do, do you think that those ideas came solely from his twisted brain? Many of the descriptions of his behavior during the reign of the Third Reich in Europe describe a man who is under the control of some influence. Clearly, a a dark interest in the occult, fits of rage, and many of the things that, that have been accounted for seem to indicate to me, I don't think it's a stretch to say that that man was not just a man, but he was possessed by an evil spirit. Well, that's going to happen again. That's the point. This demonic evil spirit's going to come up out of the abyss, which is where evil spirits are sent to when they're cast out of people. Jesus told us that in the Gospel of Luke. And ultimately, these evil spirits will be destroyed when Christ comes again. But the abyss or the bottomless pit, this demonic prison, holds many of these creatures. There will be a moment, we saw it in uh, Revelation 6, or, or after Revelation 6, we saw that they came up out of the bottomless pit. This is a place of fiery torment for these evil spirits. They would prefer to avoid it. They don't want to go there, and they told Jesus that. But sometimes, for whatever purpose, God allows them to emerge, and they do. And I think being a willing vessel, this world leader will be possessed by this evil spirit who once was, currently was not at the time of John, and as it says here, will... Notice, not just was and now is not, but will come up out of the abyss. So there's your explanation of what we're talking about. We're not talking about the man. We're talking about the evil spirit that will possess the man. But notice, and will go to his destruction. Can I hear an amen? See, I'm okay with demons being destroyed. I'm not going to pick it with signs saying, save the demons. Okay, that's not going to happen. So, although, as of late, you see people protesting to protect all types of wickedness, and you have to wonder... They might as well just put up a sign that says, save the demons or the evil spirits. But that's where we're at in our world. So, the inhabitants of the earth are going to be astonished when they see this world leader. Astonished by him. Now, it's been a while since we've been astonished by any world leader. That is, anyone who's impressive at all. And we see in verse 8, it says, the inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. So, because this person is possessed by a demon of of significant power, certainly this demon once lived on the earth, that's the implication here, people are going to be super impressed. Is it hard to imagine that? Now listen, some of you may have been alive during World War II. Some of you may have seen documentaries. Not hard to find the documentaries on Netflix on Hitler's life. But if you are aware of it, 
He wasn't an unpopular leader, obviously. He was incredibly popular. And people tend to follow leaders that have that spiritual gravitas, that, and he did. He was able to stir an entire nation, indeed a, a continent, against humanity. How is that possible? Ask that question. Answer it in your heart. There's more at work than just one person's ability. There's a supernatural working of evil spirits that brings this about. So we will see that again on this earth. Maybe we won't be here for it, but we will see it again. And this is what's going to happen. By the way, all whose names have not been written in the book of life will worship the beast. In the last days, there'll be two groups of people. There'll be those that worship this leader, wonder after him, and those that worship Jesus Christ, therefore their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now let's talk about this book. It's it's a symbol. It's used to describe the idea that you are secure in heaven. It's used to describe your place in God's kingdom, guaranteed for all eternity. We call it salvation. The Lamb's book of life is simply a record of those who are saved. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, if you believe that he died on the cross for your sins and rose again on the third day, if you believe he's coming again to judge the living and the dead, and he is your Lord and Savior, then your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen? So you don't have to worry about any of these things. See, one of the things I've been very careful to do as we've studied through this book is is to encourage you. Remember, you're not in the category of those that worship uh, the beast or wonder after him or astonished by him, even if he were to appear tomorrow. You are in the category of people that worship Jesus Christ. Therefore, you are secure. And if tomorrow they decide to put us on trains and send us to concentration camps, which is what they did in Europe a little little under 100 years ago, as awful as that would be, that would only bring us closer to our ultimate eternal destiny in the kingdom of God. You see, all they can do is really destroy the body. We fear and reverence the one who can destroy both body and spirit. And of course, he will not destroy our spirits. He saved our spirits And he has promised us an everlasting kingdom on this earth and in the life to come. Amen? So let's just put ourselves in a category of people described in this way, those that are or whose names have been written in the book of life. So those that have not are in a different category. And as we consider them, there will be eternal consequences for those that worship this world ruler. And there are eternal consequences for embracing a demonic doctrine or a demonic way of thinking or a demonic government. Now, these individuals will be astonished because the beast once was, now is not, and yet will come. Again, possessed by a demonic evil spirit that once lived on the earth in John's past. Certainly our past, but John's past as well. Now, how will he gain the world's attention? There's much that's been written about this. And some people believe, because of the things written in the Bible, and specifically in the book of Revelation in chapter 13, that it's at least possible that someone will try to kill this guy, and he will survive that assassination attempt, or even die and be raised from the dead. So imagine, if you will, it's just a a theory. Imagine, if you will, someone shoots him, kills him, wounds him, And 
he comes back to life. Uh, by the way, that theme of the resurrection is something that predates Christianity by a lot. Going back to Babylon, the pagan religion preached a message of resurrection. Uh, it's where all of the symbols of paganism that we still have in our culture today come from. It's one of the reasons, like for example, around Easter, pagan religions have images of rabbits and bunnies. Why? Because it has to do with fertility, eggs, you know, it, it, all of these symbols lead us to that direction. The, the Yule log, then the next day the Christmas tree, these are all pagan symbols. Listen, I'm not... Look, to be honest, I have a Christmas tree. It's not the end of the world. I don't want you to think that I'm, I'm suggesting, you know, you can't. But understand that those symbols have their origin in some pagan traditions. Okay? That, that's that's the, the, the solstice, the, the, the pagan worship. So a lot of that comes from these symbols of, of uh, death and resurrection. And, and the Babylonian world religion uh, that still exists today in many forms had these themes that were repeated in Egypt and then later in Greece and then in Rome and throughout the world even today. And the theme goes something like this. There's a woman, she has a child, and the child dies and comes back to life. If you're familiar with the Greeks' bacchanalia, well, the Romans called it bacchanalia, but the Greek uh, myth of Dionysus, the idea of the god of wine, uh, he would die every year and then come back to life. And so it kind of described winter into spring. And all of these pagan beliefs have been preaching a false resurrection long before the actual resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why would Satan create a false narrative? Of course, he created it to, you know, sort of take you away from the truth. There is a resurrection, but paganism has been preaching the resurrection, a false resurrection of pagan gods for, for a long time. It's amazing as you study mythology just how often that theme comes back over and over again. So, let's understand something. This is nothing new. But it will begin to get the world in line, to follow a world leader, when perhaps, perhaps, he either has the world believed that he died and rose again, or actually dies and is inhabited by an evil spirit and appears to be raised to life. I don't know, and I'm not really concerned about figuring it out beyond that, but it helps us to understand where we're going. Not where we are, but where we're headed. So, I remind you that this evil spirit we're talking about, all evil spirits, will come up out of the abyss, but they're ultimately going to be destroyed at Christ's coming. That's the good news, amen? That's the encouraging news. Now, the angel goes on to explain. He says, uh, this calls for a mind for wisdom, with wisdom. Look at uh, verse 9. He says, this calls for a mind with wisdom. Now, here's the explanation. The seven heads are, or symbolize, seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other is, has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. This language kind of harkens back to the prophecies of Daniel a little bit. But what we do know is that the seven heads are seven hills. The scripture says so. On which the woman sits. Now we talked about this last week. But there are also seven kings. There are two things. They represent two things. The seven heads on this beast have two interpretations. The first is this. The hills of Rome. 
Rome is a city that sits on seven hills. There are others, but as we talked about last week, this clearly points to Rome. The seven heads are the seven hills of Rome, but there are also seven kings, or more accurately, forms of government. For you see, the revived Roman Empire of the last days will be the seat of Satan's power during the tribulation time. Rome will also, as we saw last week, be the center of a false religious system that worships Satan. This will happen. And the woman that represents the coming world religious system sits on these seven hills. So you have a Roman-centric European system that is a religious system, but also centered in this same location in Rome is a political power. Not hard to imagine that interpretation. Again, last week's study will help you to unpack that some more. But regarding the kings, at the time that John wrote this, Five of the kings had fallen when John wrote, one was in existence and one was yet to come. So if we're talking about Rome, which I believe clearly we are, prior to 95 AD, Rome had had five forms of government. But in 95 AD, Rome was being ruled by emperors, making it an imperial government. That didn't happen in the beginnings of Rome. That happened under Julius Caesar. So there had been five forms of government. They were in the sixth. And notice we're told that one was yet to come. Because ultimately the imperial government of Rome fell, as we know. And the seventh form of Roman government will emerge, but it's only going to last for three and a half years until Christ comes again. So all of this combined with prophecies from Daniel give us an understanding of some of the things that will happen in the last days. Now, if you're lost, I've done my best to try to repeat it enough times to help you to understand a large, big picture. I'm not going into specifics. For one, we don't have all the specifics. And secondarily, this is a lot of information. So just take in a snapshot. And if you have more questions, you can speak to me or you can log on to our website or our podcast and listen to some of the messages that have led up to this message, which will, and even the book of Daniel, it will greatly help. One of the things we're told here now in verse 11 is especially enigmatic because I remember the first time I read this, I got to verse 10. I said, oh, I got it. And then I got to verse 11. I said, no, I don't. Because it says the beast who once was and is now is not is an eighth king. Wait a minute, eighth king or another king? He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The distinction is that the seventh head or king represents the government. In this case, the eighth is mentioned. He is the leader of that government. And so the coming world leader, an eighth king who belongs to the seventh form of Roman government, an imperial government of sorts. But again, he will ultimately be destroyed at Christ's coming. And for that, I'm grateful. Okay, so that's the interpretation of the seven heads on the beast. How about the ten horns? What do they represent? Well, we've seen this before. In verse 12, and we'll read through verse 14, the ten horns you saw are, or symbolize, ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb. We know who the lamb is. But the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Amen? So you didn't think the Bible talked about you, but it does. 
Because if you're in that category of those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that verse points to you and myself as well. That's a glorious future we have. It's going to be rough going till we get there, but the hope that we have is that one day Christ will be crowned king of this planet and we will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. Can I hear an amen? So that's the encouraging part of this otherwise dark message. You don't get up and generally encourage people by talking about demons from the abyss. Well, actually, I'm encouraging you because you need to know that God has a plan. You know, knowing God has a plan is all the encouragement I need. And that plan includes allowing evil to continue for a while, but then ultimately, not a very long amount of time, but then ultimately bringing his judgment and we with him ruling and reigning on this earth for a thousand years. Again, I need another amen. That's a good word. That's an encouraging truth. That's the part you need to pack up in your doggy bag and take home with you today. That's the part you want to hold on to. Forget about the demons. Don't think so much about them. Think about where we're heading and how God has a plan to restore the earth. Oh, by the way, the earth worshipers are only going to make things worse. They're not going to change anything. Jesus will restore the climate and this earth in the last days. So I'm not against saving the planet. I just know mankind can do nothing but destroy it. I know that mankind is incapable of saving himself or anyone else. So, maybe she doesn't like the message so much. (laughs) But here's the thing. Jesus is coming again. That's the revelation of this book, the revelation singular of Jesus Christ. So I keep bringing us back to that because guess what? That's the good news. So, the ten horns are ten kings. At the time of John, these kings had not yet received the kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings along with this world ruler called the beast. Now, they're going to receive their authority from and give their power to this coming world leader. This is going to be a cabal of sorts. This is going to be a grouping of nations that come together to give their power to this demonic, satanic ruler. So many people have tried to figure out who these ten kings are. I've heard all manner of theory. At one point, the European Union had 10 member states and everyone went crazy. I've heard the United Nations. I've heard NATO. I've heard everything. But none of it matters because that day is not today. The day will come when these 10 kings are revealed. This goes back to the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar's image had 10 toes representing the last day's government. The beast has ten horns. We're being told something important so that when it happens, you'll know it's true, that God has predicted it. Together, they're going to form a world government. There will be ten leaders under this leader. Now, their one purpose is to give their power and their authority to the beast. Now, imagine if ten world powers give all their power to wage war to a satanic, demonic individual. No good can come from that, and no good will come from that. But what is their real intent and purpose? We're told they make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them. I've been seeing more and more stories in the news of overt persecution of Christians. More and more, it's, it's out in the open now, you'll have school boards calling out Christians Because they're Christians. Because we're Christians, we therefore are haters, 
we're transphobic, we're homophobic, we're xenophobic, we're all of these terrible words anytime we don't agree with them. It's going to get worse. You better stand your ground today while things are actually relatively easy. I really get upset when people buckle under the least of persecution because what happens when it means your life and the life of your family? Well, we are being called all sorts of names. We are being villainized. We are being uh, identified as the source of all crime and evil. It's really our fault. Didn't you know that? It's because we're Christians and we worship Jesus. I read an article this week, and actually, the Christian school won. They settled in the court, but they were being criticized for their Jesus values. That was a, a nasty, it was said in a nasty way, your Jesus values. So that's happening already. And the day will come where this kingdom will make war against the Lamb, that is, anyone who follows him, but the Lamb will overcome. Can I hear an amen? See, that's the good news. We win. You know, sometimes when I'm watching a really intense movie, I have to remember, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We win. Okay? The, the, the good guy wins. Like, I don't really like movies where the good guy loses. Most of them don't do very well at the box office. You get to the end and the good guy wins. Well, we win. Remember that. And we will overcome. The Lamb is Jesus, the Lord of lords and King of kings. Jesus is called, chosen, and faithful followers. That's us. We'll be with him. So that's encouraging news. As, as difficult as these truths are to swallow, to digest, it still doesn't change the truth of how this all resolves. Now, a little bit of information, verse 15. We're told, then the angel said to me, John writes, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits, this is hearkening back to last week, now we're going to talk about the woman that rides the beast. They're peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. So that symbol tells us that this world religious system influences the world, the people of the world, the nations, the multitudes, the languages, it represents a city as well that's guilty of spiritual adultery with the world, a city that's guilty of seducing the people of the earth with the wine of her adulteries we saw last week. And this woman, or the system she represents, has power over the lives of many people throughout the world. And so uh, last week we broke that down, but that points towards a religious system that's been in existence since the shortly after the time of Christ. And that religious system is the church. What? Yes, the church. It started out in Rome, didn't end there, but some form of that still exists in the Vatican today. But, but understand, the church itself is what astonished John. The church, the corrupt church, is the woman that rides this world government. That's the point. Now, the beast in the ten, with the ten horns and the ten horns, they're going to destroy the prostitute. What? Yeah, look at verse 16. This is how this religious system will be destroyed. God's going to allow it, but this is how it's going to happen. In verse 16, the beast and the, uh, and the ten horns, that is those ten kings, you saw will hate the prostitute. Interesting, they're going to turn on the religious system to bring destruction. They're going to hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked, and they will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts. To accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. So God allows this religious system and then that religious system is in turn destroyed by the very powers that God allows to come into power. It's not hard to imagine that. 
Is it? Satan wants to bring destruction at any cost. So he seduces people religiously and then he destroys the people and the religion with it. Satan has come to kill and to destroy. He doesn't care how. As long as he can destroy your life, he'll do it. And so then we're told here that that's his MO. But wait a minute, God allows it. So the destruction comes on the religious system first, and then ultimately the destruction will come upon the political system, which we'll get into next week. So they will hate her, bring her to ruin, leave her naked, eat her flesh, burn her with fire. And it's God's will. See, you can't fight God's will. When I look at the world today and people cry out and say, how could God allow these things going on in our nation and in our world? Listen, God is not in favor of it, but it's his will to allow it for a time and for a purpose. Ultimately, though, he will bring his judgment. So Rome's destruction will be by God's perfect design. And he's going to give these powers, their power to rule until his words are fulfilled. But notice, God is in complete control of everything that transpires in human history. God has not given up control. He is allowing these things to happen that they will bring the ultimate resolution or consummation of all things. That is, Christ is coming again. Now the woman, one last comment about the woman, verse 18. Again, last week was all about this, but he ends this section. The angel says, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Now, that in John's time was Rome. No question about it. But throughout the centuries, it's been Rome as well. In fact, she is a city-state that rules over the nations. Vatican City is the only city-state that fits this description today, or ever really has. Listen, throughout medieval history... Popes have crowned and deposed kings and emperors. They have exacted obedience by threatening rulers with excommunication. And popes, they lack the power to enforce this rule today, but they retain the laws, the dogmas to do so, interestingly enough. Even though they don't exercise that authority, they still technically have it. The Vatican is the only city which exchanges ambassadors with nations, by the way. The Vatican is a country. It's a city-state. It doesn't belong to Italy. It doesn't belong to Europe. It's its own thing. And it does these things with every major country, including the U.S. I'm sure you know that. And this isn't a mere courtesy, because the Pope is the most powerful ruler on earth. That is just simply the truth. Presidents, past and present, address him as Holy Father and your holiness. Why is that? Well, I don't think we've seen the fulfillment of all of these things just yet. But as I ask the worship team to come up, understand something. That day is coming. God is going to fulfill these things and allow these things. But the encouragement I leave you with is that it's only for a short time. In one portion of the scripture we read today, it said for an hour. You know, with God, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. A very short period of time, an hour, ah, just, just a short period of time, it's an idiom, the devil is going to be given, not complete free reign, but a lot of power on this planet. But just long enough. My mom used to say, I'm going to give you enough rope to hang yourself. I, I, I don't know why that, it just stuck with me all these years. And I, I used to always say, give him enough rope to hang himself. That is exactly what God is doing with Satan and the 
forces of darkness. They're going to be given enough rope to hang themselves, and they will. And next week in chapter 18, we're going to look at the actual destruction of this system in detail. But for now, we're going to prepare our hearts to receive communion. And there's no better time than after a message like this, when we understand where we're heading in the world, whether we're here for this or not, this is where we're going. There's there's nothing like taking a moment to commit your heart to Jesus Christ afresh and anew. Or maybe for the first time. Maybe this will be the first time you've ever said, I want to be one of those individuals whose name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I want to be saved. I want Jesus to be my Lord, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. I want him to be my Lord. I don't want to follow this satanic leader. I don't want to be a part of that system. I want to be a part of this kingdom, the kingdom that will rule and reign forever. And I pray that that is your heart. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we open our hearts to receive communion. And by receiving communion, we are essentially saying the very truths of the gospel, that you came, that you died, that you rose again, you ascended into heaven, where you ever lived to make intercession on our behalf, and that you're coming again to judge the living and the dead. And we do say, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Lord, we ask that you would just take our hearts. As we give our hearts to you, we surrender our hearts to you. We ask, Lord, that we would be among those whose names are written in your book of life. That no matter what happens in this world, we know in the next we're guaranteed a place in your kingdom for all eternity. Paradise forever and ever and ever. Lord, that is the hope that we have. That's what we choose to focus in on. That's what we take home with us. The truth that you're coming again to judge the living and the dead and that we've already been judged righteous in Jesus Christ. And for any heart here that hasn't made that decision, I pray that by coming forward to receive these elements, they're also coming forward either to renew their commitment to you or for the very first time to publicly say, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins through your death on the cross. Cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And give me the new life that you promised and guaranteed through your resurrection. And when you come again, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.